All right, praise God. Look at Josh, front and center. Just brace yourself. I'm going to frame up this time we're about to have. Who's ever heard about the journey from the head to the heart? Yeah. Do you know that only exists because we created it? We've created a dichotomy between the intellect and the emotions and the experiential part of our nature and therefore we've built whole systems of learning that divide the two. And so often when it comes to a Bible study kind of setting, people expect to engage on an intellectual level but disengage on a emotional level, on an encounter or an experiential level. And so the divide becomes an experiential one, but we're not actually created to have that divide. God, like Jesus, when he walked the earth as a man, didn't have to get things from his head to his heart. He lived as one harmonious person with a divine nature, able to fully embrace truth through every part of who he was. So tonight will be experiential and intellectual. And I just want to create actually an expectancy in the room because I'm convinced tonight, nights like this, when people gather because they want to be mighty in the scriptures, not so they can argue better with their friends or be puffed up by it, but because they want to know the Lord and they want to honor God and they want to, and they've recognized there's something about this book that changes and alters my reality, that shapes my existence, that can invade the physical realm when I speak it in faith and literally alters reality. And so when a group of people gather with that motivation, it's electric. It's so electric. And I believe a night like this can change a nation. Actually change, impact a nation. Do you know that theology has shaped history, human history? Not philosophy. Theology shapes history. What we believe about God has determined human history up until this point where we are right now. Think about that for a minute. Ephesians 1 in the message, Anna quotes it quite often, says that the church is not peripheral to the world, but the world is peripheral to the church. Actually, what shapes culture and society is the theology of the church. The behavior of the church, the perspective of the church invades culture. It establishes nations, especially in the West where nations were founded upon Christian values and virtues which go back to a person's theology they read their bibles and they built nations based on what they drew out of these this book 
This actually shapes reality, this book. It's crazy. When you, when you read your Bible, you should approach it that you're reading, you're having a direct audience with Almighty God, the eternal divine being. You, you have a direct audience. The words on these pages are no different to an audible encounter with the living God. No different. This book is supernatural. It's the most dangerous thing on the planet. It's dangerous. What you believe, based on what you read in this book, will determine... It determines why you're here right now. You know there's something. You know there's something more. You know there's something about this that will impact everything. You know it's the answer. You know it contains the answer for your life. Everything you need is in this book. And there's a veil. There's a veil on these words because it's a supernatural book that can only be read through the eyes of the Spirit of God. And he's the only one that can unravel it to us. And he loves to do it. He loves to do it. But there's people way smarter than every one of us in this room that have no clue what this book's about. And they've read it more than all of us. And I love that. I love it. So we're going to take a journey tonight. If you, if you get done before I do, you can feel free to go. I mean that, because I'm, I'm just going to, I really believe tonight I want to give an overview of the Bible that can equip everyone to go deeper in the Word and know how to read it. Just know how to read the Bible. There's a, there's a lie in the church that the Bible's hard to understand. It's a lie. It's not true. The Bible, yes, it's big, and yes, there's different parts of it and yes there's even context that it's written in and there's there's different covenants that we're going to look at but in the same way everything valuable in life takes just a little bit of time and energy sometimes to get a grip on so you can benefit from it this is worthwhile and it doesn't take long so i just honor you guys for coming we, we've totally just used our birthdays as an excuse to do a bible study but seriously, this, this to me, I would choose this setting right here over any preaching opportunity that you could offer me. This setting. Because I know that everyone that's here wants to be here. So I, I can pull on your desire to go deep in the words. And it's, gonna, it's actually going to cultivate an atmosphere right now of encounter, experiential theology. So I, would, I just need you guys to position your hearts right now. Father, we recognize that you gave us this book. You gave us the written word. And you said that it is sufficient for us to know your will, to know your nature, to know your desire, to know your intentions, and to know everything about us that we need to know to reign in this life as we engage faith and enter into relationship with you through these words. 
We welcome your manifest presence in this room. We expose the lie. We expose the lie that the intellect is removed from encounter. And we embrace the balance of our nature. We embrace the encounter of your presence through the word of God. We have audience with the eternal God right now. We are hearing from you. We are hearing from you. We receive with meekness the indwelling word right now. Just take a moment to recognize that the word of God is like a seed living inside you right now. And when you position your heart to honor it, it begins to well up from within you. So even as we read tonight, you're going to experience the indwelling word of God. This thing is so supernatural. We honor your word, Lord. We honor your word. There's a man named St. Jerome. He was an early church father and he made the comment, ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. Ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. It's a sharp, strong statement. I just want to share a little bit of um, something that God's put on my heart of the history of the word of God and why... We're in a season where there's more Bibles available than ever in history, more translations, more resource, but fewer people reading it than ever. To those who it's available to, the value of the Scriptures is digressing. And there's a reason. And if we can expose it tonight, I believe, I believe, I want our community to be known across the nations for being mighty in the Scriptures. And it will be seen in how we live you know, the Jesus School is known for its spontaneous Bible engagement among its students. That when you give our students free time, a lot of the time they've just got Bibles open. They're just chewing, they're digesting, they're asking questions because we've created such a value for the Word of God. And there, there isn't a revival culture on the planet that will be well-rounded without a revival of the Bible. As the Spirit of God increases and moves continually in our midst, in our community, because it's happening and it's increasing, so will our love for the Word. You know, God doesn't create imbalanced revival culture. We do. We misprioritize facets of what He values when, when His presence manifests. Does that make sense? So we sometimes value the glory cloud and so our attention and focus comes on it and it increases in our midst because that's what God loves to do and then we can remove our hearts from other things that he's trying to get us to value that will sustain revival culture such as the word of God. I'm just, I'm just going to frame a couple of things up and then we're going to go through some, some really simple tools tonight.
Another thing he put on my heart is about um, prophetic culture. Do you know Mormonism, the religion, started because a man valued the prophetic above the word of God? That's how it started. A man named Joseph Smith valued encounter, valued the visions of his mind, which is good to value, but he ceased to filter them through the word. He ceased to take the encounters he was having and submit them to the word of God. Because a simple rule that makes the prophetic healthy is, is it consistent with scripture? Healthy prophetic culture has a simple filter. Is it consistent with the scriptures? It doesn't have to be in the scriptures directly, but is it consistent with what the scriptures teach? Make sense? That simple rule avoids global cults starting. And there's a couple of Christian cultures I've, I've been aware of that are, very, are walking a very fine line right now where they hold their encounters, maybe not above the word, but equal to it. And they, they've, I've even heard comments made from some preachers that it doesn't have to be consistent with Scripture to be authoritative. And they begin to preach encounter at the cost of scriptural accuracy. So prophetic culture is at great risk if it's not anchored in the Word of God. Mormonism started because of that one imbalance. Then he has an encounter with a demon who looks like Elijah and tells him the real gospel and then he writes the Book of Mormon and the story goes. You see how real this is? I love this. I love the opportunity to anchor our community in the Word of God, to inspire. Man, if, if we could just leave tonight with a love for the Scriptures, with a diligence in our hearts to know them as individuals, to create a discipline in our life, to delve into it, then it's, it's a really good night. Really good night. Do you know that we live in a time where we are the richest generation in terms of biblical access? that's ever lived on the earth. We are the richest generation in terms of biblical access that has ever lived on the earth. The Bible is covering the planet. It's in more languages on the earth. It's, it's like the majority of languages on the earth have the Bible now. At least the New Testament. There's organizations like Wycliffe that are just dominating that space. They just spend their whole lives translating the Bible into different languages. But I, just to paint a bit of a picture that I felt the Lord has, has shown me the last few years is, who knows Martin Luther? Everyone knows Martin Luther, the reformer. Exactly 500 years ago this year, the Reformation happened. Like it was at its uh, climax in, in this year, 500 years ago which is significant, right? Now, at that time, the Roman Catholic Church was the universal church. It was the church, right? They had a huge amount of power and a huge amount of control. 
And they had this philosophy that they taught everyone in the church that the, the average Christian cannot interpret the Bible. Therefore, there's no need for them to have the Bible. And only the priests and the clergy have the inspiration necessary to interpret it. And because they devalued the word, they taught whatever they wanted because they didn't have to be held to account to the scriptures because most of the people didn't know the scriptures. Right? So it was called inspired interpretation. It was, see, this simple philosophy impacted the global church for hundreds of years. The simple philosophy that the average Christian can't understand the Bible. A philosophy driven home by the Roman Catholic Church. So no one made an effort. If they had one, they didn't read it. And most of them didn't have one anyway. Martin Luther coined a term called private interpretation. And he fought for the truth that every single Christian can understand the Bible. Yes, he fought for salvation is by faith alone, but man, he also fought that Christians would know the Word of God. He taught the global church. And the Roman Catholic Church today have changed that based on the Protestant movement. So now we, we see, we all think we can understand the Bible. We, we might have a few hindrances, but back then, no one even had Bibles. And if they did, they didn't think they could read it. I'm sitting in a room full of people that know they can get it. Without having to do three years of seminary, even though that's valuable if the Lord calls you to it. But be very careful not to believe that lie. Because sometimes there's a spirit of inspired interpretation that tries to seep into our mindsets and says, well, I'm not a theologian, or I haven't done a PhD or a master's. And you devalue your own ability to hear the Holy Spirit and have Him teach you directly what the Word of God says. And then, when you find out that the church you've been at for 10 years was teaching heresy, you're upset with them because you think it was their responsibility to teach you the truth because you believe that lie, like they were better at it than you. And you had a Bible sitting on your bookshelf that whole 10 years, but you didn't read it. Not because you didn't want to, but because you believed a lie. Do you know the Reformation only happened 500 years ago? It might seem like a lot, but in the grand scheme of things, Christ was 2,000 years ago. It's modern history, the Reformation. Modern. We're just 500 years into having Bibles that we believe we can read. 500 years. It was only 100 years ago... Actually, not even 100, maybe 90 90 or so years ago when the revelation hit the bride of Christ that the average Christian can also move in faith and heal the sick. Less than 100 years ago. There's people that moved in faith, but they didn't preach that the entire priesthood could move in faith. We are so young in revelation as a bride. There are things to discover in this book that the church needs in order to reach the harvest, we are growing. We have, there's so much room for growth. And the more you look into church history, the more you realize we've missed some things along the way, theologically. 
big time. And now every one of us has the opportunity to bring change. And because we're in a safe community, where we're not defined by our theology, when we feel we learn something that's powerful and hits our heart, we've got friends that we can dialogue it with and we can open our Bibles together. We've got leaders who aren't afraid of potentially controversial ideas that come out. That's what safe communities are for, so we can have safe theology. And everyone gets to delve into the Scriptures. But real quick picture. Martin Luther translates the Bible into the common German language. And it's right about the time where the printing press is invented. Right? So even though it had been translated a couple of times before that, now they can mass produce the Word of God. It's a key time in history. So they pump Bibles out. People start to get Bibles all over the place. They begin to translate into other language. It's an unstoppable force now. The Bible begins to cover the earth. All different languages until this day, and it's still going since the 1500s, right? Now, when you zoom out of history a little bit, at first you see a major value for the Scriptures. Major value. Uh, Anna sent me a video of the Chinese church. Now, I wish we could play it, actually, but... Yeah, Chinese church that has very little access to Bibles still today... And has anyone ever seen a video of when a box of Bibles arrives at a Chinese church? It's really confronting. They'd storm it. Like, people get injured. They're just reefing Bibles out. They're so hungry. There's people in China that get one page. They've had to rip Bibles up and give people a page each, and they just treasure it. They'll bury it under the ground in their house so it doesn't get stolen from them. And they cherish the Word of God. There's people that say, oh, the Chinese church, they don't need the Word of God. They've got the Holy Ghost. They're growing. But then you, you look at them, they're like, give us the Word of God. It doesn't devalue the Spirit of God. He wants to use it to teach people the nature of God. So this thing happened shortly after the Reformation. This thing called the Enlightenment starts to surface. Right? We come out of the, the medieval or the not the medieval times, Reformation era, and we start to, uh, we've got the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, and, and we start to redeem the arts and creativity and literature and um, the human mind and creating things, right? And so the science age begins to blossom, where we start to get very intellectual. It's where terms like God is dead come from. The seven, it's... it's a, just around the start of the 1700s, late 1600s, where people start to think their way out of faith. And if it can't fit in their head, it can't be real, right? This is so profound. So Reformation era, the huge majority of people believe in God. Atheism, a non-event. Atheism is a modern philosophy, actually modern. If it existed, there's very little historical evidence for it during that Reformation time. Everyone believed God, right? You're born in it, you're raised in it, you die with it. But what happened was the Word of God's valued and then it begins to spread, the, spread across the earth. You can see the devil at work in this, this is what I'm trying to get at. And then the Enlightenment 
the value for the intellect, the value for science, the value for being able to calculate reality and analyze, right? And then people start to look at the Word of God through that lens, through that enlightened lens. And it, when it didn't make sense to them, they started to devalue it. And so now they're getting these Bibles and losing the value for it. Guess who wins? The devil. I'm not saying the Enlightenment's demonic, but I'm saying the devil used it to crush our value for the Scriptures. And even down to this day, there's still, there's still Christian circles on the earth that uh, right now are, are living in heresy and devaluing the Scriptures, and they're called liberal Christians. Liberal theology, it's called. It's where the, the intellect, if it doesn't fit through it, it can't be true. And they've, they've watered down the Bible to the point where our German intern last year named Sophie, who met her? We loved Sophie, hey? She went to a Christian school in Germany, which is the origin of the Reformation, where they deeply valued the Bible. She went to a Christian school and her Christian teacher, teaching religion, boldly stated to the whole class that the resurrection wasn't real, that Jesus never raised from the dead. Because it can't be proven to the intellect, the enlightenment, the science mind that rises above the Word of God. If the resurrection didn't happen, our, our religion's futile. Do you know that? 1 Corinthians 15 says it. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then you're still in your sin and your faith is futile. We should be most pitied if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But now we have Christian leaders teaching it. It's called liberal theology. It's hectic, eh? It's actually, un, it's not Christian. It's really dangerous. So this, I, I would so want to see a value for the Scriptures return. And there's these little lies we've believed like we can't understand it, it's too hard for us, or like maybe it's not inspired by God like we thought it was. Does that make sense? But when you get in your heart, I think one of the key reasons, I've, I've had a lot of people say to me, why are you so passionate about the Bible and how do I catch that? And when I tell them one of the main reasons is because I believe it, they get a bit disappointed because I, I have faith that it will shape my reality. Faith. And it's a great question to ask. I want to be more passionate. I have a desire to desire. I have, a, I have this desire to be passionate about the Word, but how do I get there? It's a great question. You believe that it is what God says it is. When you believe that this book is what He says it is, you'll live in it. You'll prioritize it. It will take precedence over any TV show you could think of. Not because you're trying to be legalistic, not because you're like feeling compulsion, because you believe what this book is. It's so simple. It's faith. Do you know why the sick get healed? Because the Bible says they'll get healed when you lay your hands on them and believe they'll get healed. If we hadn't read it here, we wouldn't be doing it. The Bible shapes our reality. What we read in here and engage faith with alters human bodies. 
That's crazy. You know, God is an invisible spirit, and we worship an invisible spirit named God, who we believe is three people in one person, because of this book. It's all because of this book. I don't want to believe in that just because my culture believes it. I want to believe the Bible. It's not enough just to be caught up in a culture that believes a thing. There's this individual ownership that's actually just blossoming in people as righteousness, as a revelation, hits our hearts and we realize the access we have to the Father. The value for scriptures will increase because we know that we can get it now. We know we're compatible. We know that the Spirit of God searches the deep things of God and is being given to us that we might know the things of God through the Word of God. All right. So to finish that thought, a key thing that um, people struggle with is the supernatural in the Word of God in that liberal theology world. And... um, they start to, it starts with, say, the seven days of creation get challenged because we don't understand it. So that, that must just be literary or illustrative writing. We'll write that off. Jonah and the whale. Scientifically, we can't figure out how a whale could actually physically swallow a man whole and then he would survive for three days in the belly of that fish. So we write that off. It's all illustration, allegory. We, we start to pull the thread Right, where our mind becomes the filter instead of submitting our mind to the Word of God. And eventually you hit the cross with that thread. You hit Jesus. You hit the incarnation. It's the most supernatural event in the whole Bible. It's when God becomes a man. It's the greatest miracle of all history. God became a man. That gets challenged. And then immediately you're not a Christian. And then the cross goes out the window, the resurrection, and then your faith, your resurrection life, disappears because it doesn't happen apart from faith. If he's not raised, then you're not raised. See how dangerous it is? You know, if the Bible said that Jonah swallowed the whale, I'd still believe it. I don't care if it doesn't fit in my head. Since when did it have to? It's the word of God. You know, Psalm 138 verse 2 says, The Lord has magnified his word above his own name. The Lord has magnified his word above his own name. You can't get more valuable than that. That's a powerful thing. And do you know what that means about the word of God? It means that it is eternal and unchanging. Because his name is eternal and unchanging. What that means is that if God was to do something that he said in this Bible he wouldn't do, he would lose his integrity and cease to be God. Because he's an unchanging God. The word is established above his own name, meaning if he violates the word, he violates his own nature. That makes this a living law. If it says, I desire to heal the sick, the sick need to get healed. If I don't see it, I don't question the word, because God doesn't. He's established it above his own name. 
the, the Word and God isn't the missing link. It's my developing faith to believe that what He says is true. This, this creates an honor for the Scriptures in my life. Because I see the way God honors the Scriptures. Okay, 2 Timothy 2.15. I, I just want to get real practical now. And by the way, if you just want to get snacks or get a drink, just help yourself. Just move around when you need to. And we can do questions as we go. Liberal theology? Or lib... Ooh. Praise God, overflow. Yeah. Oh, Carter was just asking whether liberal theologians read their Bible. Yes, they do. Yeah, they still value it. They just don't believe that it is... Um, they believe it ha- is full of error. So they value it as a powerful book. And they even teach from it. But they, they have this great world of philosophy that comes along with it. Um, and the feeling, the soul... You could almost call it um, a theology of the soul liberal theology because it the way you feel that God should be becomes how God is so universalism is a great example of liberal theology I feel like God isn't good if people go to hell I feel like God's not good in that scenario but I know that he's good so people mustn't go to hell hell mustn't be real everyone's going to heaven love wins Modern Christianity, postmodern, postmodern, okay, cool, who's got two Timothy, I'm going to get people to read, yell scriptures out, we'll have to be nice and loud so everyone can hear, who's got two Peter, uh, two Timothy 2 verse 15, Zoe's got it. Okay, one more time, nice and loud. Amen. It's good, hey? Rightly dividing the word of truth. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what I want to just do tonight. Here's a question. How many sections is the Bible made up of? Six? Nice and loud. Six? Two? Three? Old Testament, New Testament? That's two. It does, huh? What about 66? Nah. What about one? 
two. No. Any other ideas? Who said six? Why did you say six? The Gospels, the Epistles. There's, who can break down the Old Testament ones? Is it the, you've got the first five books, what are they called? The books of Moses or the Pentateuch. Then you've got the books of history. Then there's the poetry, which is Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes. And then the major prophets and the minor prophets. Seven. Any other ideas? If you... I'm going to share the way I've... Like, those are all correct answers. But I want to share the way I read it personally. That's brought it to life for me. And you can go deeper into each of those sections, like the first five books and the histories and all that stuff. But for the sake of tonight, I just want to look at the Old Testament as one chunk of the Bible. And then the Gospels, the four Gospels, as another chunk. And then the Epistles, which is the letters that were written by the Apostles. Yes. I break it into three sections. And I want to give some simple lenses. Do you know that every time you read your Bible, you read, them, you read it through a lens? For example, if I made the comment that God is all-powerful, who would agree? God is all-powerful. Andrew? Kathy? Anna? Everyone agree? Okay. So that's a filter. So when you read your Bible, that you don't say that intentionally in your mind, but you're always digesting Scripture through an idea that God's all-powerful. How about God is unchanging? Everyone agrees. No one's calling me a heretic yet. God's unchanging. How about God is all-knowing? God knows everything. Okay. This is so natural to us. These filters, everything you read, you read through those lenses, right? How about God is relational? Everyone agree? That's very good. How about God is inside time, not outside of time? both isn't it interesting that we're so comfortable with some lenses that we don't even talk about them probably sometimes for years we wouldn't hear the word omnipotence or omniscience but we all have them as filters until someone presents a filter that goes well hold on sometimes it's not until you realize a conflicting one that you you, you take note of how natural the other ones are to you 
Do you know there's a there's another one called the impassibility of God? And it means that the, the theme behind it is that God is unemotional. What do you think about that? Unemotional. It's called the impassibility of God. It's a filter. God is unemotional. No emotions. Because the idea is that if he has emotions, then he must express them and therefore he changes, which means he's not unchanging because he changes his emotions. Interesting, eh? That's a common filter. Reformed theology, Calvinism, that's one of the key filters. God is not emotional. Which is why when you make the comment, God's in a good mood, it gets a reaction. Because a good mood is an emotion. But then when you talk about the anger of God, they don't seem to get as upset for some reason. Interesting, eh? Filters are so powerful and we all have them. a good question if we're made in god's image and we have emotions then surely god has emotions that's a great question i think at the end of the day does the bible show that god is a god of emotion because that's going to be our ultimate authority and of course it does did jesus have emotions that's a good one but you know this impassibility of god got so intense for a season that people started to say Jesus was fully man but not fully God because he had emotions and God doesn't have emotions. And then that heresy called Gnosticism came into the church and affected a third of the church in the first hundred years of the church. And they started to say that Jesus, um, yeah, wasn't God incarnate. He was born of God but he wasn't God and changed. It, it's, it's intense and it comes from these filters, right? So my key filter that I've chosen to live with is that God is relational. And it's not the most popular filter in theology. But I think it should be. I think it should be the primary filter for every Christian to read their Bible through, cover to cover, is that God's motivation is relationship. It's not, a, it's not something he likes as a side issue. It's why he created us. It's what motivates everything he does. So the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, what's the motive? Relationship. The flood. Choosing Israel as opposed to the other nations. If you read everything through the lens of relationship, you would be amazed at what comes through the scriptures. I encourage you to try it. Because then you're not reading this Bible. You know, if God's, God is relational is your lens, that for God's motive, it'll become your motive too. So when you study the Bible, your motive will be relationship with him. So everything you do becomes intimate. Everything you read is an intimate thing. 
That's so significant. That's how you avoid being puffed up when you read your Bible. Let's say knowledge puffs up, but what edifies? Love. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. What's love? It's intimacy. Love edifies. If that that's should be our motive for reading the Bible. So here's a couple. That's a good lens to start with, right? Another one is James one. Someone can go to James one for me. So these are like really broad lenses. Father, I just thank you that there's a grace, Lord God, to just absorb, just absorb things as people take notes. And just I thank you that there's a spirit of wisdom and revelation in this room. There's a supernatural capacity right now. There's a supernatural capacity to be immersed in this as a community tonight. James 1, I think it's verse 22. I think Anna has it in her new beautiful Bible. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. There's a few things you can draw from that. Like to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. But the, the point I want to draw is that that's the, the. So Anna just read from the Bible, right? Have you ever heard the term scripture should interpret scripture? Scripture interprets scripture. So that's a rule to live by. So if you want to interpret scripture, you should do it with scripture. And if you're ever going to say, the Bible says, and then say a statement you should be able to say the bible says and the bible says and the bible says the bible will always back itself up more than once always when a theme a prominent theme in scripture is coming across it'll be right throughout the bible you'll be able to find a cocktail of scriptural backing for it but if you have to pull one verse and that's all you've got to draw a major point, it's probably off. You're probably off. Scripture interprets Scripture. So James, which is Scripture, James 1, calls Scripture a mirror. A man who hears the word but doesn't do it is like a man who does what? Looks at himself in a mirror. The context is the Word of God, the Scriptures. And now he's using a mirror to communicate what the word is, right? So now I'm looking at my Bible, which the Bible calls a mirror, and I'm studying my natural face. What's the Bible about? Which person is the Bible about? Jesus Christ. He is the word made flesh, right? 
Is he the truth about you? 1 John 4, 17, as he is, so are you in this world. That means when you're reading the Bible, which cover to cover, the written word is about the living word. It's all about Jesus. Then you're actually looking in a mirror because the truth about him is the truth about you. So you look intently at your natural face in the mirror, but when you go away, you forget what you looked like. That's significant, hey? That's another lens. How many of you have ever had a period where you tried to read your Bible because you knew you were supposed to, but every time you read it, you just felt confused or condemned or like a sinner and incompatible with God? Raise your hand. Okay, pretty much everyone. That was my life for years. And I only read it because I knew that good Christians read it. That's it. True. So many of us do that. We have a love-hate relationship with the Scriptures because we have a desire to know it, but these lies telling us we can't. But when you see that the Bible isn't a measuring stick for what a failure you are, but it's a mirror showing you who you actually have always been since you believed, that one shift changes the way you read the Bible and it makes it a whole lot more comfortable and satisfying. So now I don't look at Jesus' life and go, wow, I suck. Because that's what it was before, right? Because if you believe you're a sinner, you behave like a sinner. So compared to what I read about his life, it was not cool how I was living. But the moment that shift came, that his life is actually a mirror by which I truly define myself, everything changed. Everything changed. And I conformed my emotions, my perspectives to that truth. Conformed to that truth. And then my experience was transformed to look more like Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay, the Word of God is a mirror. These are great lenses, man. I wish I had these when I was your age. How old are you? 18, bro. Mm. Have you got your Bible here? You got it on your phone. That's good. Wow. Praise Jesus. The opportunity you guys have. Don't you reckon, Tom? Man, you guys are like walking around doing miracles. You're 18, 17, preaching the gospel, getting equipped to read the Word of God and be mighty in the Scriptures. What do you reckon, Lou? What the? This is so significant. Do you know why you guys um, can quite naturally see miracles? I bet, I bet it's rare that a week would go by that you wouldn't see a supernatural event in your life. It's because the bride of Christ has been learning things from the Bible. And Christian culture has been evolving to conform to this word. And you're, you're in a generation where the, the revelation of the priesthood of all believers has hit your hearts at a young age. 
man, but what else is available for you guys to search out in this book? It doesn't stop where Bill Johnson leaves off. Does that excite anyone? It's not a finished thing. We can mine the depth of this book. It's only, it's only now that this, this uncovering of what's always been in the Word is being restored to the church, that righteousness isn't just something God says about you, but it's something you are. Such a sh- small shift that changes everything. It changes everything. In one generation, we're going to see it become common revelation. And in 50 years from now, another person will be sitting here teaching and everyone will be walking in it. It is ground taken. And they'll talk about the time, say 100 years from now, they'll talk about the time when people still thought they were sinners as church history. Do you get that? That's powerful. It's going to be church history when we believe that lie. If you don't know your history, you can't always value the present. Right, so the Old Testament. Now we know then that the whole Bible is a mirror because the whole Bible is about Jesus, right? And we can adopt a lens that God is relational because he's motivated by relationship. All right? Now, let's go to 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, because it's just a couple more ways to read the Old Testament. We're starting in the Old Testament. We're not going to be able to break down the parts of the Old Testament, but this is going to be really helpful as an overview. How are you guys doing? Do you need to do star jumps? Anna, do you need to do star jumps? I know. And look over here, boy. <laughs> Actually, 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. Who's got it there? Who can yell it out for us? Mrs. Rowe. It's great to have you guys here, by the way. And then what's just that last little sentence after that? Whoa, that the man of God, another translation would say, a man of God may be perfect, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why? Because he's mighty in the scriptures. You know, something people skip over a lot in that verse is is the comment from childhood. What does that tell you about children? They can be mighty in the scriptures. There's another common lie to expose. How childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Do you know that when Paul wrote that to Timothy, he wasn't talking about the New Testament because it wasn't written yet? Paul was writing that. So Timothy, from childhood, knew the Old Testament. Childhood. 
Naomi. Children can get it too. We're still, we still have adults wondering if they can get it. The scriptures. It must be understandable, right? From childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are what? So we're talking about the Old Testament. They are able to make you wise for salvation. The Old Testament points to righteousness, points to salvation. The Old Testament points to salvation. The New Testament provides it. That's a key. The Old Testament points towards your need for a saviour. Points you towards salvation, while the New Testament is the declaration of your salvation. Or the Old Testament points to righteousness and the New Testament provides it. They're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, how much? Is it all red letters? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. So what's the Old Testament, the Gospels and the Epistles about? Righteousness. Righteousness isn't a side topic. And the scriptures are profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be perfect. Wow. See, these key verses, these are keys that unlock the Bible and make it understandable. So when you read the Old Testament, what are you looking for? You're seeing it, that it points us to the Savior, salvation, and it points us to righteousness so far right and that children can can read it and understand it that's a significant verse let's go to luke 24 luke 24 is one of my favorite chapters in the bible and yes that is a bold statement there's some good chapters in this bible are the words of jesus any more inspired than the words of ezekiel you know red letters were only invented about 30 years ago? Oh, no, sorry, 40, 47, in the 70s. They started to print Bibles with Jesus' words in red. So Paul didn't write with a red pen. I'm not against red letters, but I think... I think they've done some damage to some people because people have elevated the words of Christ above the words of Paul or above the words of Moses. And every word in the Bible is inspired by God. So the Holy Spirit spoke as clearly through the red letters as he did every black letter in your Bible. That's so significant. Don't be a red letter Christian. That's just narrow-mindedness. You're just wasting the rest of the Bible. Side, side note. Luke 24. I love this. Wow. So this is just after the resurrection. Luke 
at your outfit. Sylvie. Okay, Luke 24, 13. I might just read this one because it's a bit long. But just get, let's get lost in this passage together. Let's use the eyes of our imagination to put ourselves in this picture. This is, I'm, I'm, have you ever put yourself in a Bible story as you've meditated? Like Last Supper, anyone been to the Last Supper? Does anyone go on imagination encounters with God? I think, I think most of us do. Hey? You've got these different scenarios that you create in your imagination and then you ask the Holy Spirit to fill them with His inspired visionary realm. But sometimes it's cool to give Him something to work with. This is, um, this is one of those situations where I'm walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus and I meet with Jesus on the side of the road. And we walk together and He talks with me. Anyway. I love doing that. That very day, two of them. So Luke 24, verse 13. Just get, let's just get in there. So Jesus has just been crucified, right? And these guys are disappointed because they thought he was going to liberate them from the Roman Empire. That's what most of his disciples thought. They weren't thinking that sin was their issue. They thought the Romans were. They thought Jesus was going to shred and take them out and raise up an army and destroy the Roman Empire and liberate the Israelites. So they were very confused. So they're sad because Jesus has died on a cross, even though it's to be the most celebrated thing in human history. And that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, that's about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding as you walk with each other, as you holding with each other as you walk? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here? Jesus said to them, What things? So they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. See, they thought he was a prophet, not the Messiah. This is so interesting. These were his disciples. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he might be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Listen to what Jesus says. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27. Just take note of this verse. It's a very powerful verse. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Do you know what Moses is? It's not the story of Moses in Exodus. Nice and loud. The first five books. Hey, girls. How are you? The books of Moses are the first five books of the, of the Bible. Who can say them? 
Nailed it, Sam. Um, so they're called the books of Moses. The German Bible, which we learned from Sophie, doesn't call them those names. It calls them the first book of Moses, the second book of Moses, the third book of Moses, the fourth book of Moses, the fifth book of Moses. It doesn't actually have those names. So, beginning with Moses, that's the first five books, or the Pentateuch, is what those first five books are called. And all the prophets, that's the major prophets and the minor prophets, that's most of your Old Testament, right? Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what's the Old Testament about? Jesus. So if what you read in the Old Testament isn't consistent with the life of Jesus and what he teaches you about the Father, about life, about the intentions of God, then you need to revisit the Old Testament. Wrong lens. Does that make sense? Christ is a lens. Righteousness is a lens for the Old Testament. Now, but what about the books of poetry? Let's just read a bit more. So they drew near the village. By the way, that's, that's one of the moments I wish I could go to. Can you imagine that conversation? Where Jesus just enlightens, he just opens the eyes of your heart and you just know him in every passage of the Old Testament. I'm so envious of these two guys. Although, I do get the same thing that they got through the Holy Spirit. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. There's a lot of cheekiness in Jesus in this passage. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Again, that's a sense of humor. Can you imagine that? That's hectic. He's a human, and he vanishes from their sight. The moment they're like, oh, it's Jesus. <laughs> like, what? What did they do? Neck minute. Look, look at this. Has, everyone, has anyone ever experienced this? They said to each other, verse 32, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? Who's ever read your Bible and felt your heart burning within you? That means you have the same thing those guys had on that road. Because Jesus was in human form speaking to them in audible language. It's no different to when you read your Bible and he speaks to your spirit through it. It's not second rate. I love that. So look what happened. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Now they've just walked all day, right? And now they get up and they, they were going to have dinner, so it must be night time, and they run back to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what happened and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. So he appears in the room. Another, another gospel shows that he walked through the wall. 
So imagine Jesus walks through the wall and goes, peace. <laughs> peace is the last thing you're going to have. In that <laughs> Look, peace to you, exclamation mark. But they were startled and frightened and thought they'd seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. That means when Jesus rose from the dead, he still had a human body. They couldn't have touched him. That's very important. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Now, just quickly, look at verse 30, 44, last verse. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then what did he do? He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's a universal opening. If you're a disciple, your mind is open to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, This is as written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And then repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Wow. This is for us. We still live in this age right now. Significant, hey? So, who can just feed back to me a few lenses to read the Old Testament through? Relationship? God's motive for relationship? Jesus? You're looking for Jesus? A mirror? The word is a mirror. That's the whole Bible. That's a good lens to look through. Scripture interprets Scripture. Righteousness. Why righteousness? Because of 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed, useful for training, correcting, teaching, and exhorting in righteousness. Um, Romans 3.21 is another really good example of how the Bible's about righteousness. There's actually many examples, but that's another good one. If someone can grab that and just yell it out. That's good. Did everyone hear that? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or has been revealed apart from works of the law, although the law and the prophets point to it, bear witness to it. So the Old Testament points to righteousness. The New Testament provides it. It's a great statement to remember. Okay, now we're going to move to the, the Gospels. Because I'm going to, as we unpack the Gospels, the Old Testament's going to make even more sense. Is this all right so far? You guys good? Does anyone need to go to the toilet or get some food? I'm okay, thanks. Nah, I'm all good. Thanks, Anna. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We're going to do the Gospels and the Epistles fairly quick, and then I actually just want to 
I want to give you guys a challenge to do as you go from this in terms of reading the Word with just some simple tools to read it over the next week. And we did, I did an activity down in South Australia where, actually we're going to do it. Everyone go to Matthew chapter 1. But I'm not going to do it the way we did it down there, Sam. Matthew 1. Matthew 1 verse 1. A few of you know what we're going to do. Who's there? Matthew 1? Okay. Now turn back one more page. And what does it say? <laughs> Louis, take it easy. What does it say? The law. Ooh. It says the New Testament, right? And then it says, words of Christ in red. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> wow. So what I said in South Australia, but I'm not going to say it, was I said you can rip that page out of your Bible. And then Sam did it. And so she has her page severed from her Bible. When she ripped it, yeah, it was intense. Sam. Who knows what a will is? Who, who has a will for your children? Louis. I'm talking about the will you're going to receive. We're talking about the one. So you got a will? What needs to happen for your children to inherit what you've given them on your will? death. A will is no different to a covenant. They're the same thing. So the new covenant, you could call it the new will. It's an exact picture of what a covenant is. But in the same way, a will cannot take effect until a person who has written that will dies. The new covenant can't take effect until a person dies. Who had to die? Jesus. So when does the New Testament start? It, does the New Testament start at the incarnation where God became a man, or does it start when God dies on a cross? Death? Let's go to Hebrews 9. This is one of the most misunderstood things in reading the Bible. So, so when Jesus says, hey, let me give you guys a tip for living as godly people. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to, to envy after something, pluck it out. Why as Christians do we not do that, especially when they're in red letters? Because the red letters are more inspired, correct? No, Zoe. Why don't we do that? Do we believe the Word of God's literal? That we should take it literally? I actually do. 
I believe we should take the word of God literally. So when it says believers will lay their hands on the sick and the sick will recover, I'm going to take it literally. When it says God created the earth in seven days, yep. Why don't I take that literally? Why do I still have both hands? When you look at your Bible, it's never a question of inspiration. It's never a question of, is this inspired by God? It's always a question of covenant and context. Which covenant am I reading about right now? Because that will determine whether that verse applies directly to you in a literal way. If it is a new covenant verse, then because you are in the new covenant, you need to take it literally. If it is an old covenant verse, you don't. It doesn't mean it wasn't received literally at the time. It means it's no longer the covenant where we should have done that literally. Does that make sense? We'll unpack it some more. This is why many Christians say, well, I'm a red-letter Christian, or I just... I take the Bible literally, but then I look at their appendages and I know that they don't. Appendages are part of your body that extends from appendage. Limbs. That's a good question. Kata. Did everyone get that? Appendage. You had to put an appendage up to ask that question. <laughs> Hebrews 9 is amazing. Verse 16. Hebrews is incredible. It's the best unpacking of the New Covenant, in, probably in the New Testament. If you want to learn about the covenants, the book of Hebrews is awesome. The Old Covenant, New Covenant. For where a will is involved, this is speaking of the New Covenant that Christ appeared, right? Uh, to give us. I'll go from verse 15. Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. So there's an old covenant, which is the, the law, the Jewish covenant. Then there's a new covenant, which Christ came to give us. Okay, there's two main covenants. He's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a what has occurred? A death has, not a birth, When does the new covenant start? When a death occurs. A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will or a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. The new covenant didn't start until the cross. That changes a lot about the four gospels. It changes. You know that that... This whole book is inspired, but that title page isn't. The New Testament title page, Paul didn't write that. But because we believe that the whole book's inspired, we know that I'm not devaluing the Gospels when I say that. If you felt like when I said that, the four Gospels are in the Old Covenant, not the New Covenant, if you felt like a little bit of a like they're not as valuable suddenly, it shows that you don't value the Old Testament as much as the New Testament. I'll challenge that. 
it's as valuable, it's as inspired. So it doesn't change the inspiration of Scripture. It changes the context. Right? Who ripped it out? I oh, don't rip... Okay. It's an Alan. <laughs> well, we're all going to rip our pages out. I'm so convinced that I don't care if you rip your page out. This isn't... This is watertight theology. It's the Bible that teaches this. I'm, I'm not mucking around. I set it down in Adelaide. Teachers of the word will be judged with stricter judgment. I weigh my words. I weigh my words a lot. So even though I'm jovial, I don't waste words. And I'm not throwing out ideas. I'm throwing out things I'd die for. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. The new covenant was not in force while Christ was alive. That means the context of his life was an old covenant context. Galatians 4 verse 4. Who can yell that out for me? Born of a woman, born under the law. So what's the context of Christ's life? The law. Who were his audience? People under the law. Context. I'm not challenging the inspiration of the Gospels. I'm challenging the context and the covenant that they're written in. Is that making sense? And what does it say after that, Jakey? Wow, so at the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, incarnation, born under the law, to what? Redeem those who are under the law. Do you know that you're not under the law? See, new covenant theology is the only correct theology to read the Bible with. To know that you are not under the old covenant, which is a law system that God gave to the Israelites. Put your hand up if you have Jewish heritage. Okay, Zoe. Anyone else? It is the most absurd thing on the planet to be a Gentile, 21st century Christian, and think you're under the Jewish law. It wasn't given to Gentiles. They never had a law. They never had a law from God. They didn't come to the new covenant through the old one. They just entered in the, the new covenant. But 2,000 years later, because of some misunderstandings when we read our Bibles, we can enter in through Christ and then commit adultery with Christ by engaging with an old covenant because that's what it is. It's, it's faithlessness to Christ. Because the moment you embrace a law to be okay with him, you violate the blood of Jesus that made you okay with him. It's called adultery uh, in the Bible, Romans 7. When a woman who is married to a man, when her husband dies, speaking of the old covenant, she is free to marry another man. But if while her husband lives, 
she marries another man. She is an adulteress. If you're under the old covenant and then you come into the new covenant simultaneously, you're an adulteress. But as Christians, we've got this blend of old covenant and new covenant. Where we, we make these ideas like, oh, we don't have to obey all the Jewish law. We just have to obey the Ten Commandments. It's just the ten. I grew up with the Ten Commandments as a kid's poster on my toilet door. So every time I went to the toilet, I stared at the Ten Commandments that were given to an Israelite nation 6,000 years earlier that don't apply to my life. Because I thought they did, they just continually condemned me. As a young boy, it's all colourful. There's like butterflies and then the Ten Commandments. <laughs> it's intense, hey? It's absurd. We even try to impose the Ten Commandments upon our modern political systems. It's bigger than just individual freedom. Sometimes we try to build our nations on precepts that are not the fullest representation of God because the new covenant was his eternal will for us, not the old one. I don't know if I needed to say that. That might open up some questions. But um, So if, if it is just the ten, then what about the Sabbath? Because that's one of the ten. That's a Saturday, by the way. Did you work yesterday, Sylvie? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who else went to work yesterday? Oh, call yourself a Christian. You too, Danny? Okay. Did anyone eat shellfish? Kind <laughs> of don't lie, that's also on there. What about just the two greatest commandments of the law? Because didn't that, didn't that guy, that lawyer, come to Jesus and say, Teacher, what are the, what's the greatest commandment in the law? What did Jesus say? What's that? He answered his question. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. In Christians, in the new covenant, we don't have to obey the 613 laws or even the 10. It's just the two. The problem with that is it's still the law. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? In the law. You're not under the law. Romans 10 verse 4 says, Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for anyone who believes. Romans 10 verse 4. What does the law do? If you have a paradigm where you have to do this A, B, and C in order to have access to God, what does it create in your life? Sin. That's why the law came, to increase sin. 
The law came that sin would trespass would increase, Romans 5. But where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, new covenant. The law was a tutor, Galatians says, to lead you to Christ. To lead you to Christ, that you might put it off and live in the new covenant. This is Christian Theology 101. But there is some deep deception in the church around this topic because of this New Testament title page that wasn't there when they wrote the scriptures. Where should that title page be? Right before the book of Acts. Or if you could kind of put it right there at the, just the crucifixion. That's significant, hey? He was born under the law. He lived in a context where if someone asks you what's the greatest commandment in the law, he's going to answer that question according to the context it was asked in. A person under law asking a person under law what's the greatest commandment in the law, he answers the question. That's Matthew 22. I'm 95% sure. You shall love your Lord, your God, with your heart and mind. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commands hang the entire law and the prophets. Let's go to John 13, verse 34. This is just, just to highlight the law is a great way to give a principle of how to read the Gospels, right? Here's a question. Why, in Jesus' words, red letters, again... He said, the Lord's Prayer, this is how you should pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not, off, is it after that, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then what does Jesus say directly after that prayer? He says, for truly I say to you, unless you forgive those who sin against you, your Father in heaven will never forgive you. Is that the kind of thing you hear from the pulpit every Sunday? Unless you forgive those who sin against you, God won't forgive you. Is that consistent with what the letters that the apostles wrote says? Is that unconditional forgiveness? It's a law. Jesus came to a people stuck under a law who thought they could do it in their own efforts. Still. So what does he come to do? Jesus is the law on steroids. He came to ramp it up. He came to make them so condemned they could not escape and they had to look for a saviour. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, he says, he, he, his finishing statement on this three chapter long sermon is, you must be perfect. How perfect? As perfect as God. If you are under law... And you hear him say that to you. What's that going to create in your life? 
condemnation, fear, futility, self-consciousness. You're going to be so aware of how much you fail to measure up to God when that person says that to you. If all you see is through a lens of the law, that verse crushes you. It makes it absolutely impossible for you to be righteous. That's why he said it. He's trying to drive them to the cross, which he's about to go to and hang on on their behalf. He's trying to expose their need for a savior on a deeper level than even the law had done. Who remembers the dialogue? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, what's that? That's the law, right? Don't commit adultery. But I say, even if you think a lustful thought in your heart, you've already committed adultery. The law times 10. You've heard it said, don't murder. Even if you hate your brother, even if you say fool, you've murdered him. He didn't come, his, his ministry was to crush them under the law to trap them in their own sin, to expose their inability to be holy and then drive them to the cross so they might receive grace and come into the new covenant. Right? Why? Because he was under law. That's why he was there. And then when he goes to the cross and he dies for those sins, now they can finally see, aha, that's my entry into right standing with God. Guess what? In the new covenant for us as Christians, Gentiles and Jews, we can look back at those statements now as a mirror, remember? Not a measure. Whoever read those statements, just totally confused. I was so confused by the cut your hand off one. And you, you, you just speed read a bit more to get through it. You do? I just thought I did. Oh, oh, there's that thing again. Okay, skip what's next chapter. You just pick up the next chapter. Because I don't understand why I'm... My parents didn't cut their hands off. I know they haven't lived a perfect life. It's so confusing to read Christ's words in a new covenant context because they weren't written or spoken in a new covenant context. But when you look back through the cross with the lens of the new covenant, Guess what? When he says, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, it's no longer a measuring stick. It's what's true about you. It's a mirror. Hebrews 10.14, For by one single offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So that verse becomes the truth about you. So now I can read the Sermon on the Mount and be energized and impacted and inspired by it. And I, I can apply it prophetically to my life. So now when it says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, even if you look at a woman lustfully and, and lust after her in your heart, you've committed adultery. I go, whoa, whoa. Looking back through the cross as Jesus as my example, empowered by grace, I can live the rest of my life without another lustful thought in my heart. I never have to lust again, not a day in my life. Doesn't that change the Sermon on the Mount? It's all about your lens. See, Jesus is so clever and this book is so supernatural that he could do two ministries at the same time. And say now Zoe is a Jew living in that context, right? And Josh is a New Covenant Christian. And I say, therefore, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Josh goes, Hebrews 10, 14. He has perfected me. 
the cross, he hears it according to grace and the new covenant, and it invigorates and impacts him. Zoe is crushed by it and tormented by it, but they're sitting hearing the exact same words. It's called the dual ministry of Jesus Christ. On the one hand, it's prophetic for the new covenant. On the other hand, he's finalizing the law and binding everyone up under it. Is that making sense? Okay, cool. John 13, 34, who can yell that out? Can you say that one more time? Does anyone notice the difference there? Why do we need a new command? We've already got a whole bunch, right? What's that? The old ones weren't for us. A new covenant gets a new command. A new covenant gets a new command. You are not under the old covenant law. You're under the new covenant law. And that was it. You just heard it. A new commandment I give to you. How is it different? How's that what Danny just said? New commandment I give you, as I have loved you, so you must love others. How's that different to the other ones? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Relationship? What's that? It's about what he's done and not what we've done. So look at it through the law. You must love your God with all of your mind, your soul, your heart, and your strength, and then you must love your neighbor as yourself. Who's the attention on? Whose ability? Who's got to come up with the goods? That's why it's the greatest commandment of the law. It's the ultimate trap. You can't do that. Especially because you don't know God because Jesus hasn't revealed him yet. How do you, know, how do you love someone you don't know? With all your heart and soul and mind and strength. It's the law. But in the new covenant, Jesus says, No one knows the Father, but I've come to make him known. I'm the visible image of the invisible God. I'm the exact imprint of his nature. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Don't you know that I am in the Father and he is in me? We are one. If you've seen me, you've seen him. The perfect picture of the Father. And then he says, As I have loved you. Now you can finally love other people. Now you've finally seen what it actually looks like. Now you finally see the Father. So now as you let me love you as your highest priority, in fact, I command you, let me love you, receive my love. Hey, receive it. Then you'll know how to give it. You can't give something you don't have. Isn't that powerful? In the new covenant, you get a new command, which is to receive the love of God and then give the love of God. 
All right. So is that a good example, do you think, the new covenant command? So when you read the Gospels now, you can have those two ministries in mind. Try to read it and ask yourself, what did this mean to the people that he said it to? And then ask yourself, what does it mean to me now that I'm in the new covenant? Okay? And remember that the Old Testament starts at the death of Christ, not at the birth of Christ. Okay, now the, the epistles one's actually the shortest one. How are you guys going? Again, if you get tired, you can go. I'll just get stirred up on this stuff. This is my favorite. This is my world. This is my zone. I said to Tom, I'll do this any day over preaching to hundreds of people. I don't care. I want people that want to know the gospel. I want people that want to be mighty in the scriptures. Otherwise, it's words. We've got to get this thing, man. Because private interpretation is real. Every one of us can know God through the scriptures. This is all for the outcome of intimacy. That's why we do this. So again, so I just, I don't have an expiry. I'm just aware of you guys because it's 9.16 and it is Sunday. So we're not all going to stare at you funny if you need to go. Although Naomi might. She said to me the other day, what, what else are we going to do? Midnight? What's that? What else am I going to do? She says it all the time. <laughs> what are people busy doing? What else would you do? Watching TV? Okay, the epistles. John fourteen twenty five. This blew my mind when this hit my heart. Okay, so we're looking at how to read the Old Testament, how to read the Gospels. Now we're just going to finish with the epistles. John 14, 25. Nice and loud, Tommy. Nice and loud, Anna. Or Tommy. Out of the Allen. Wait for it. Everyone hear that? Everyone's got that? John fourteen twenty five. These things I've spoken to you while I am with you. But the helper, that's what um it's the same as what God said when he created Eve for Adam. The helper. Holy Spirit is our comforter, our counselor, our helper. And he said, He will do what? Teach you. Teach you how many things? all things so when the holy spirit comes he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance everything that i said to you when did the holy spirit come what's that Nice and loud. I'm, I've seen mouths move, but I can't hear. Acts. Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's spoken to them of the kingdom. Then he ascends and he says, wait 
tarry in Jerusalem for not many days from now, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll receive power from on high to be my witness. Right? And then on the day of Pentecost, 120 people in the upper room, Holy Spirit comes. That is the inauguration of the new covenant. It became available at the death of Christ, but it was inaugurated on the day of Pentecost. And when the Holy Spirit comes, what did he promise to do? What did Jesus promise he would do? Teach them all truth. Who was in that room? A guy named Peter was in the room. A guy named John, a guy named James, probably Jude, who happened to write our New Testament for us. And they received the Holy Spirit. And then so did Paul later. And then so do we when we believe. And what does the Holy Spirit promise to do? Lead us into all truth. So what does that tell you about the epistles? They're true. Now, did those disciples have a clue what Jesus was doing when he walked the earth before the cross? They had zero idea. They spent three years with him, day in and day out. They had no idea. Why? Because they didn't have the Holy Spirit to teach them. So he spoke to them in parables. This is so powerful. He painted pictures for them in parables because he knew, right now you're not going to get this, but as soon as he comes, he's going to bring these pictures to life and you're going to understand the gospel. That's the power of pictures. Let's go to John 16, 12. It's even clearer in John 16, 12. This says a whole lot about a lens for the, reading the Gospels and the Old Testament and the Epistles, this reality. Who's got John sixteen twelve? Rachel? Not Zoe. You got this girl. Is that not King James, is it? Wow, Rachel. Need to get you a new Bible. That's good. I have much more to say to you. That one sentence is huge. I have much more to say to you. What does that tell you? Jesus didn't say everything. Guess what? If we didn't have the epistles, if the Bible stopped at the end of John, we still wouldn't have a clue. You know, the book of Romans really teaches what happened on the cross. You don't get that in the Gospels. Co-crucifixion, his death was our death. You don't have a clue unless you read that in the book of Romans. I have so much more to tell you guys, but you can't handle it because you don't have the spirit. You're sinners still. You're actually sinful in your nature. You can't understand. You're blinded. There's a veil over your hearts because of the law. Can you imagine, just put yourself in Jesus' shoes. You think he sacrificed. His whole life was a sacrifice, not just the last couple of weeks. The people that he wanted to relate to on a heart level didn't understand him. His whole human life. 
He didn't get to connect with Peter the way I get to connect with Josh. It, was, it, it couldn't be reciprocated properly because Peter couldn't see him for who he was. It's the ultimate sacrifice to have, like the Holy Spirit, I think, gets the sweet deal. Because now in the new covenant, he is the person of the Godhead who we interface with. Does that make sense? Can you imagine being Jesus, just being with these 12 guys and they don't understand you? That's so full on. So I have so much more to tell you and you, you don't have a clue. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you all things. What does that tell you about the epistles? That the epistles bring the entire clarity you need for, to understand the gospel. The letters. Without the letters, we don't have a clue. Again, that doesn't devalue the gospels or the Old Testament. It gives you a healthy lens to read them through. So when Jesus says, unless you forgive those who have sinned against you, your Father in heaven won't forgive you, how do you know if that's new covenant or old covenant? What's that? Oh, nice and loud. Okay, but you have to find it in the epistles. If you read something in the epistles that, that is different to the gospels, which one are you going to go with? The epistles, because it's in the context of the new covenant revealed by the Holy Spirit. So in Matthew 7, or Matthew 6, Lord's Prayer, you've got, unless you forgive those who sin against you, you won't be forgiven. Then you go to Colossians 3 verse 13, and it says, just as you have been forgiven, so you should forgive others. That completely contradicts what Jesus said. In the new covenant, after the cross, it's, you have been forgiven, so now you should forgive others. Unconditional forgiveness. Does that sound like the cross? You go to a Billy Graham crusade. He's not preaching, guys, unless you forgive people who sin against you, you're not going to be forgiven by your Father in heaven. Guys, unless you be perfect, like God, you won't be righteous. Why is he not preaching that? Because... The new covenants come. It's God's. The Lord is extending grace to you and mercy. He wants to set you free from sin and bring you home to heaven. Imagine if we preached the Gospels the way many of us think we really should. So if you read it in the epistles, it trumps the Gospels. You need to read the Gospels through a lens of what you read in the epistles. Make sense? So the Colossians one's a great example of that, Colossians 3.13. Now Ephesians 3 verse 4, just to finish that point. Paul's an apostle, right, with the Holy Spirit living inside of him. Ephesians 3 verse 4 says this. When you read this, so when you read my letter that I'm writing you, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. That's a pretty bold statement. Guys, you can see how much I know about God when you read my letter. Which was not made known. Man, take, get this. This was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by who? 
the Spirit. Ephesians 3, 5, 4. When you read this, my letter, my epistle, written after the cross with the help of the Holy Spirit, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ, because in the Gospels it was a mystery. They didn't understand. But it, and it was not made known to them, but it has now been revealed. The epistles. Paul knew more than they did in the Gospels. That's huge. Colossians 1, 25. says this, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God f- fully known. Love you guys. It's good to see you. To make the word of God fully known. How known? Fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to who? His saints. So the full mystery revealed is from the epistles. Okay, is that helpful? Awesome. I'm going to read one more verse, and then I'm going to finish with um, an, a challenge for you guys. It's 2 Peter 3.16. Who's got it there? Ruthie, have you got it? Oh, oh Glenn's got it. 2 Peter 3.16. So that's 2 Peter 3.16. Peter, it's, y- you miss it if you blink. But Peter, who's an apostle, is talking about Paul's letters, right? And he calls them scriptures. He says some people twist Paul's letters to make them mean things that they don't mean, just like they do with the other scriptures also. So they knew that they were writing the Bible. Paul knew his letters that he's writing are scripture. These guys valued the Old Testament scriptures and they knew they were writing the word of God that would make up the New Testament scriptures. And Peter called Paul's writings scripture. That's amazing. They so got it. When the Holy Spirit came, they went, aha, we're going to write the rest of the Bible. That's crazy. The epistles, man. See, I'm not elevating them above the rest of the Bible. It's inspired cover to cover, but the context of the epistles trumps the rest of the Bible. It's where the mystery is fully revealed. 
Okay, so there's some lenses to read these three parts of the gospel through. The cheat sheet for the rest of the Bible. I like that. Yeah. If you're looking for something of clarity, it's the same with the Old Testament. If, you, if you're not understanding it, you have to go, okay, what, how does Christ tell me what this means? What does Jesus' life tell me about the flood of Noah? You can't isolate it and try to make up your mind about it apart from what Jesus reveals, what righteousness points to, what the epistles say about it. It's really healthy. If we get this, if we can all walk away with that, then when a cyclone hits Thailand and 10,000 people die, we won't think it's God. We might even raise up and take authority over it instead because we know our Bibles. Like that's, that's just New Covenant 101. God's not in the business of destruction. Jesus came to give life and life abundantly. Do you know how many Christians struggle with that? Not anymore, hey? All right, cool. So here's a, here's a challenge for you guys. There's three ways to read your Bible. There's devotional, three main ways. Devotional reading, topical reading, and another word called expository reading. Devotional readings when you get maybe a chapter or maybe a verse. A verse of the day. Who's got verse of the day app? Joshy, Danny, are you, are you worried? Because I'm about to just... The, the, the major problem with devotional Bible reading is that if you just get... What was the verse of the day? Okay, it's... Proverbs, no, no, let's go, Isaiah 15, verse 2. He's gone up to the temple and the high places to weep. And then we say, Lord, what are you saying to me today? Oh, the high places, weeping. And we, we, we draw some conclusion apart from the context, apart from the covenant, It's like pick a card, any card, any card you want. Just open your Bible and point and go, Lord, what are you saying today? He wants to teach you how to read your Bible. Can you see how dangerous that could be? If you do devotional Bible reading without understanding the context of Scripture, you'll end up with Jeremiah 17. Whoa, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can discern its ways? Oh, I can't trust my own heart. It's deceitful. It's evil. I have an evil heart. Well, be careful, guys. We have evil hearts. Because I picked a verse without understanding the new covenant that gives me a new heart. Or even the verse just a couple of chapters later that prophesies, I'm going to give you a new heart. You see how dangerous it is if you don't know the context? So devotional. The other one's topical, and that's where you choose a topic. Say... The grace of God. 
And then you go through your Bible and you type in the word grace on a word search and you go to every verse where grace shows up. And they can be awesome. So I'm not devaluing any of these, but I am suggesting that there's one that's far better than the other two. So I'm devaluing them somewhat. He can use them all. That's what I mean to say. Yeah. So topical, and I, I do topical study. I love it. I love doing word studies, right? I love doing character studies. Do one on Barnabas. Like look at every time, just study his life. Let it come to life. And, but if I do a topical study on grace, I might find some verses in the Old Testament and pull them out of context and misunderstand grace. Just because a verse says it. So topical theology can also be dangerous because you take every verse... Hey, what about forgiveness? Okay, I'm doing a study on forgiveness. I just found one in Matthew 7 that says, unless I forgive those who sin against me, God won't forgive me. Okay, that goes in the mix. And I create this cocktail of a theology around forgiveness that contradicts itself. And then I teach it. And I confuse everyone. Does that make sense? Because in there's Colossians 3.13 that says I am forgiven. We create these weird theologies because of topical studies. So they're okay to do when you understand context. The last one, which I want to invite you guys to do this coming week, is expository study, which is when you choose a book of the Bible and you read it from start to finish. Maybe not all in one sitting, although if you're at work and you get an email from your husband, would you read the whole thing start to finish? Would you read a paragraph and then go have a coffee break and come back the next day and read the next bit? Depends how long it is. Say Philemon, for example. A Philemon-sized email. See, these books, some of these books are long, so you can't always read them in one sitting. But they're letters. They have a start, they go in a direction, and they end somewhere. So it's healthy when you can to, to take a journey through Scripture. Expository is actually letting the letter be read as a letter. So you read it start to finish. Maybe not all in one sitting, but you just work through it. So this week, the book of Romans. You choose it. You set a time aside because you want to be mighty in the Scriptures, and it's actually not that hard to set time aside to read it. I have the same amount of time as Rachel and Christine. We all have the same amount of hours in a day, same amount of days in a week. I never let people tell me they don't have time. We all have time. We're just not using it wisely. It's not about having it. It's about using it. What you don't have is a value for the scriptures. So you're not using your time that you have on it. Does that make sense? You may not. Yeah, so that wasn't a, yeah, you may not. It's to that person in my head who I'm talking to, my imaginary friend. You get what I mean by that, hey? Yeah. Okay. I fight to do this in my life still. I fight to prioritize scriptures because I fight to believe. Unbelief is an issue that can come at people, myself included, where I just like don't feel that the word's going to be as living and active in my life or as relevant to my life some days. And so I have to choose that it will be. I choose to believe. And then I read 
Does that make sense? So that's where the diligence to believe comes in. And so Romans is 16 chapters long. If you read two chapters a day for the next week, or say for the next 10 days, which isn't a huge amount, and ask yourself these two questions. What did this mean to the original readers? What did it mean to the original writer? That's, that's a thing called reader relevance. If you do that, if you'll read a letter, start to finish, and just ask yourself, what did that mean to the person who read it back in that day? What did it mean to the person who wrote it? You'll never be off in the context. If you can get that right, you'll never go astray. That's healthy, hey? So the book of Romans... Is, a, is an invitation for you guys for the next week. I've just spent the last month in the book of Romans. It's the only book I've read, apart from doing stuff like this. Start to finish. And I want to also show you guys this amazing little resource. It's called Nelson's Compact Bible Handbook. It's like $9 online. I think it's the book depository. Nelson's Bible Handbook. What this does is summarizes every book of the Bible. Hey, Ruthie! It's so easy. So, a kid can read it. I haven't seen it on my phone. If you can find it, let me know. The other option, which someone brought to my attention in Melbourne, is on YouTube. There's a thing called The Bible Project. You guys seen that? which does exactly what this book does. So if you, go on, if you type in The Bible Project Romans on YouTube, a nine-minute video comes up, and it's an animated cartoon which tells you the context of Romans. It tells you who wrote it, when they wrote it, what it means, and a brief overview. And over some topics too, hey. It's, it's an amazing resource. But in this, for example, it's... I go to the book of Romans, it's like four pages long. So it's, it's like the briefest overview. What's the key word in the book of Romans? It's the righteousness of God. What are the key verses? Romans 1.16 and 3.21. And it literally just frames the letter for you so that when you read it, you've just got this highway to drive on, right? It comes alive when you do this. So if you can go on YouTube and look up the Bible Project or get one of these, they're both just awesome to have, right? this a good reference? Yeah, I, I have the same problem. Um, this one is the best one I've been able to find. And it doesn't make huge doctrinal statements. It's quite like unopinionated. It just gives you the historical context. Um, so I'd recommend this. And I've, I know quite a few people recommend Nelson's one. Oh, do you need a hand? Oh my God. 
We love you, pardons. So you get one of these, or you look at it on YouTube, and just have a go through Romans. That's what I've just been doing. I'll, I'll, I'll do it again soon. I'm going to move on to 1 Corinthians now. And it is amazing how the Bible just comes to life and impacts you. Is anyone excited to do that? Is anyone going to do it? Now, if you raise your hand, it means you're going to do it. Book of Romans. One to two weeks. You're fine. You might spend two hours and you won't get past Romans 1. Remember, he speaks constantly as you do this because it's intimately focused, not intellectually. All right? Cool as. That's it. Wow, it's almost 10. You guys did so well. What was the intro? Just now. So yeah, if you need a quick toilet break, we're going to um we're going to get started now. Thank you guys. Thanks for listening. Questions? Did anyone wonder why? <laughs> anyone wonder why the Book of Romans? No. It's the most important book in the whole Bible. Unpacked, succinct, total, com- complete realm. Realm. If you understand the book of Romans, you understand the entire Bible. It's the key to the whole Bible, the book of Romans. Start to finish. It's perfect gospel. That's what Martin Luther said. Perfect gospel. He said every Christian should read it every day and know it by heart. Crazy, hey? Huh? 